Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Mauricio Collada at uh, Cubanismo Vineyards in Salem. It's uh, February 17, 2023. Mauricio, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question to get things started is why wine? Why wine? Well, wine is something that I got into accidentally when I was uh, studying biology at the University of Miami. And uh, I was amazed how easy it was to make as far as fermentation was concerned. Now, mind you, at that time, I didn't make any refined product. I was just <laughs> glad I could get something with alcohol that tasted well. And then through the years, I had different touch points with people who were truer experts into different aspects of the wine industry that got me even more interested in it, but never really had the vision of going into a vineyard and a winery at the onset of my life. Uh, I became uh, passionate about Pinot Noir. And then when I started my career here uh, as a neurosurgeon in 1983, lo and behold, I find that Pinot Noir is taking off in Oregon. And uh, I created a myth that there may have been a second reason I came to Oregon unknown to me. And as I got to know more of the folks in the wine industry, it was uh, charming. It was just a different aspect. The, the social aspect of it was uh, very uh, enticing. And I got, to, uh, I got to become more interested in the whole view of the vineyard and everything else. So that started me getting more interested into the wine aspect of things. Uh, and I started off with the vineyard and eventually the winery. Um, and, you know, obviously that's a quick go around of what uh, my life into this career has been. But it, it, it is a, a good sort of guidepost of how I ended up here. Well, we have many more questions about that, but let's back up for a second and talk about life before wine. So tell yeah. us about uh, where you were born and raised, sure. early life, and yeah. what, how you, what you did before Oregon. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Cuba. Uh, I was born in Cuba. And uh, my father was an artist, and we had a very nice life uh, in Cuba until the Castro regime took over. And then it changed our lives overnight. Um, I didn't grow up in a uh, wine-drinking family. In fact, my family didn't drink that much alcohol to, to start with. Um, and then when we came to the United States, it was a typical life of an immigrant, and you're struggling to try to get ahead any way you can. Um, one of the things that became key uh, for me is advancing myself with an education to try to prepare myself, mostly. Uh, and I uh, was very fortunate to come to a country that's so welcoming. And uh, although our earlier years were very, very challenging uh, and something that I've looked back almost as um, another face of life, uh, it was so different. and. So, so many struggles. At the same time, uh, we succeeded a lot. We advanced our lives. Our family was able to, to succeed. And 
enough that I ended up going to University of Miami, which, you know, a private school in those days, difficult to get into. And it was in that setting that uh, in the biology class, I started learning about fermentation. So, um, and I was able to advance, is what I'm getting at, that I was able, despite my early rough beginnings and humble beginnings in the United States, I benefited from the kindness of this nation and uh, went to University of Miami, subsequently to medical school in University of South Florida. And after doing some time in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, I ended up doing my residency in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. In um, Charleston, South Carolina, is where I came in contact with a French Lebanese uh, individual who was doing a surgical residency. And his fi family came from a, uh, a wine background. And it, it was through him that I started learning about uh, Burgundy wines and Pinot Noir. And um, I was able to take advantage of the fact he was knowledgeable. He gave a lot of food and wine pairing lectures, even as a resident. And that allowed me to at least be able to eat decent meals, every once in a meal. <laughs> uh, but no, then, then came the residency program. And the residency program in neurosurgery, which is my specialty, is supremely challenging and difficult and all-consuming. So at that point in time, I don't know that I even thought about ever touching the wine industry. Um, and um, then came by happenstance to Oregon. Uh, it's a state that I had only heard about, a state that I mostly associated with uh, hippies and pot. And, uh, and, uh, and then I came here, and from day one, I was charmed. It was a completely different landscape. You know, I've, been growing in the Caribbean island, being mostly in the south, and then you come here to the majesty of the state, and it was uh, spellbinding. And here I am. <laughs> Tell me about the when you when you went to school. What, what point did neurosurgery become something you wanted to focus on? What point did medical school become a goal for you? Yeah, well, medical school became a goal to me. Uh, interestingly enough, as a child, uh, one of my sisters. Uh, almost died uh, from pneumonia in the uh, 1956. And we were fortunate to have an American-trained Cuban doctor who came with something that was very novel, uh, an incubator and antibiotics. And, uh, and even though you, we can take that for granted nowadays, it was something that was very remarkable. And he was singularly uh, able to save my my sister, and at least that's how my family spoke about him. And they spoke in such uh, noble terms uh, that I remember as a child being impacted with how much a doctor can impact a family. And I remember thinking I, I wanted to be one of those types. And um, that's how I came into being in love with being in medicine as a doctor. I had no idea or ever planned to ever become a neurosurgeon. I thought that because of my temperament of wanting to get things done, I would eventually become a surgeon. Um, I couldn't be as, you know, the other type of doctors. Let me just summarize it as that. Uh, but I never thought ever of neurosurgery. And as I got more along my training, um, I started being able to marry in neurosurgery two passions of mine. One of them was psychology, psychiatry, understanding the human mind, and then the actual uh, capacity to make some improvements as a surgeon. 
But I still struggled with the idea of becoming a neurosurgeon early on because I knew how hard those guys worked and I didn't necessarily want to do that. But as time evolved, as uh, I got to know more about the career, more about the challenges of that field, then here uh, I made the decision ultimately to go into it. And the, um, the amazing thing uh, is that life is always a challenge in what you plan and what happens. Uh, you know, the old John Lennon is what happens when you're making your plans. And I never thought that I would go into this, but one of the greatest things that has happened is I've never regretted for a minute going into this career. So I know we can talk to a lot of neurosurgeons in this job. Uh, to give me an idea of, you mentioned how difficult obviously the process is. Give us an idea of what your life is like as you're going through medical school residency. What are you doing? Uh, what, what is your life like? And what are, what are sort of the milestones you have to pass? Well, you know, I'm, a, at a, I'm on the other side of that career almost. I'm in a very different phase. In the early days, number one, um, yeah, medical school was very competitive, and to get into medical school was very challenging. Um, and everybody was studying their days out, hearts out, eyes out, to try to make sure you got the grade to be considered. Once you're in medical school, you feel you jumped a hurdle, but now you got the next hurdle, which is being brought into an appropriate program so you can learn the, the art of medicine beyond just the, the book side of it. And that was also very competitive. Um, and yet, you know, I have never shied away from competition. So even though that sometimes is pictured as a very difficult epoch, and it is, uh, I have always sort of welcomed competition and uh, engaged in it uh, avidly and, and, and happily. And thank God came on the right side of the competition many sides. Um, in uh, internship, an internship program in those days, now they have more complete programs that include internship and neurosurgery residency. Internship is something that you're basically committed to working. Uh, and, and nowadays, they've become very sensitive to work hours. Mm -hmm. And so they talk about 80 hours. And I um, do not uh, say that it was the best thing for me, but it certainly was very helpful that I was exposed to all the work that I was exposed to and I was able to learn as much. But my average hour as an intern uh, or a resident, I mean, 90 hours a week would feel almost like a vacation. So, you know, we were working average 120 hours a week. And, um, but you have to understand that you're working and learning. You, you're doing this uh, also with the backing of a professor, so it's not you taking the full hit of the impact. I think that there's something that happens once you start in practice and you become uh, the responsible uh, person that is heading the team that takes it to another level. And when I started in practice, I thought that I was well-trained, incredibly capable, but you could not you know, erase a certain line of insecurity that was running through me because here was me for the first time taking on the care of a patient, the care of a human being entirely of myself, and then leading a team to do so, the nurses and everybody else that works with you. So that was challenging, but you know, I came into it with a desire to succeed, and 
was able to find a welcoming community. Uh, Salem, Oregon has been a very wonderful community for me to start my practice in. Initially, I was helped by other neurosurgeons that sort of backed me up. And uh, subsequently, I've been able to also contribute to this institution that I'm so proud of, Salem Health, as to not only making them a better institution, but making neurosurgery a more uh, uh, responsible and totally capable entity for this community. But no, neurosurgery is immensely difficult. If you're asking me how many hours did I start when I was, uh, say, as I started my family, started my practice here, it also kind of started being, and the routine was 60 to 90 hours a week. Uh, you know, 40 hours is something we don't ever see. Uh, and uh, in fact, I cannot even imagine it, <laughs> to be quite candid. I don't even know what that means. Uh, but um, it's, it's a very difficult field. Obviously, we're dealing with very dramatic things, brain uh, problems, spinal problems, uh, a lot of, of, of tragic situations. And yet, at the same time, uh, I tell my younger colleagues and everybody else that we're privileged also to be, have the first, scene, first seat in the first line when it comes to the human condition. And you're able to contribute and make life for others better. Uh, and there's no greater reward than that. You mentioned earlier the, the kind of that sort of the insecurity. Uh, tell me about getting, getting past that and getting to the point of feeling confident when you were the one making decisions. The only way to deal with that insecurity is by trying to face it head on. You cannot deny it. You cannot block it. You can put it in the back. You have to know that that's an underlying part of you. And the, but the only way to kind of diminish it is by preparing yourself better, preparing yourself more, uh, trying to confront each situation, knowing that you've been well-trained, knowing that you have a good background, and then putting your, your best effort forward. And sometimes it involves more reading about a case. Sometimes it involves uh, trying to get a better grasp of the technique you're going to be using. Sometimes it involves practicing more on a technique that may be particularly difficult. I uh, remember when we started, a very typical procedure we did is doing microvascular uh, anastomosis or joining between small vessels of the scalp and the brain. And I can tell you that I, uh, a lot of rats uh, uh, sacrificed themselves for that purpose. But I came on the better side of that, and many humans benefited from that purpose. So. No, it's uh, it, the insecurity in any profession has to be there. If, and if you um, ignore it, uh, then you forget that it's going to show its head at the worst times. So if you face it and, and know what are the aspects of, of it that make you insecure, then you are able to uh, advance. And in my case, the way I did it is through first grasping that I was well-trained, number two, knowing that I was uh, compassionate and was always going to be putting my best foot forth for patients. But then I just read more or did more practice or did something that would strengthen my hand in trying to do what I did. And, and by the way, it doesn't mean that in a field like this where you're dealing with so many uh, 
new situations and challenging situations, you ever come into this thinking you're godlike and you've kind of conquered all the demons and all the elements of insecurity. That's something that in life is part of the human condition. It's a matter of just not ignoring it and facing it and moving ahead. So you talked about coming to Oregon without having any real concept of Oregon outside of the typical concept of Oregon. What brought you here? And, and give me an idea of your initial impressions of, of Oregon. Yeah, so very true about uh, that my impressions were wrong and, and, and certainly would have not been the driver to bring me here. <laughs> what really happened was I had, uh, at the time, I was married to an attorney from Louisiana who, if you know anything about Louisiana law, it's uh, Napoleonic, so there's no reciprocity between Louisiana law and anywhere else that practices common law. So I looked up and down Louisiana to see if I could start practicing as a neurosurgeon. And the neurosurgeons that were there were all very aristocratic, very Southern-like. They were very, uh, um, um, very hotty-totty. Very, very difficult for me to see practicing with them. And so I was in a true funk one Saturday, and this is God honest truth, and uh, not knowing what the heck I was going to do here, I was literally saying to myself, I've trained all my life, and I don't even know what to do. I don't want to say this out loud, but I don't even know. And I saw an orange flyer in the garbage that I picked up. And that orange flyer was a uh, uh, flyer that came from Spink uh, Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in Eugene, advertising for an Oregon, uh, for a neurosurgeon, and that they would fly the person in. And I thought, gee, I need a little time off. They're going to fly me out. And then the other reason that I thought it worthwhile is my wife, who was at that time a, a person from New Orleans, and you can't take people out of New Orleans. It's, it's a truism that once they come from there, they don't want to leave. Uh, had her brother working in the forestry service in Oregon. So I thought, well. If anything, this might work because of this and that. So that's how I came to come to Oregon. But what I was trying to get at, even though it was a rainy day, I might admit that, and of course, that's Oregon too. Uh, even though it was a rainy day, as I traveled down the I-5, I could still see the, the mountains, and I was in the forests, and uh, all the, the greenness, uh, and the, the geography that you see along the I-5. and. I was taken over by this place. Um, and in Eugene, you know, Eugene has its own charm. So when I interviewed down there, uh, I, I was really captivated. And I thought that that would be where I started to practice. It turned out that the neurosurgeons there were uh, a, a, a little similar to the ones in uh, uh, Louisiana. And I asked around to see if there was anybody that I could talk to to see if it was still worth it because I felt that I could certainly contribute to improving the culture. Uh, and uh, I connected with a neurosurgeon uh, in Salem, Oregon, that had a connection with the chairman of my program. They talked. They talked about me. The next thing is when I call, he says, listen, you don't want to go down to Eugene. Those neurosurgeons are all a collection of assholes. And uh, I think you would be better advised to start practicing with someone like me. And here I am. 
<laughs> that is a good coming to Oregon story. So you mentioned you, you, you had fallen in love with Pinot before realizing that this was a Pinot place. So tell me about, as you got here, tell me about discovering Oregon. What did Oregon's wine country look like at that point? What did the, what did the wine industry look like? Well, the wine industry at the time was very primitive. You knew the big names, Sarko Blosser, Bethel. You know, you had names that had been, that made their mark. And um, you, I started reading about that even as I tasted the wines. Um, I remember, uh, you know, uh, tasting some of the Red Hill wines that came from uh, Sokol, and I just uh, marvel at the fact that this community was making those beautiful wines. Um, and I got to know more about it with every, you know, step I took. Um, I decided that as I read more about it, and I continued to read more about wine, that if I was ever going to go into the industry, I needed probably to not just be uh, silly and get into a winery, but know that wines, as is typically said, are made in the vineyard, so that I needed to understand uh, vineyards, per se. And so I bought a piece of land with the sites of putting a one-acre vineyard to start understanding what it was going to be like. Uh, that was in uh, 86, and yet I was too timid to get going at that time. I was just three years into practice. Uh, and I remember that I had the land, but I was totally terrified at the idea of developing the whole land. And in fact, terrified as a whole because I had never been a landowner. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have not known land owning in any fashion whatsoever. I didn't have any agricultural background in my family. As I told you, my father was an artist. Uh, and so uh, this became uh, daunting. Um, and yet, I started participating in more wine events, went to the original International Pinot Noir Festival. And um, it was uh, a great, great experience. Uh, uh, I got to know different people. Uh, and uh, it was interesting because it was in one of the early years that I got to know Robert Druhan. Uh, and he sat in my table, and I was, I'll never forget the conversation where I, I asked uh, Robert Duhan if, what he thought about this Oregon wine industry, and I'll never forget his comment. He said, well, you know, I think it's, it's a great experiment, and you don't know where this is going to go. Of course, they don't have the same history as our uh, French Burgundy industry, but who knows, it might be something that succeeds. I found out five years later that on that trip, he had bought 400 acres of land. And so it, it told me a little bit about how some folks talk about <laughs> uh, uh, their feeling about the truth. But be that as it may, I continued to be interested. And then I finally went ahead and decided to develop the land in 1991. Uh, and it was at that time that I also learned uh, something that was different, uh, which was zoning laws. Uh, <laughs> I thought that I had my 21 acres, I was going to develop what I wanted in it, and I woke up to zoning laws. And it was in those, under those circumstances that when my one-acre plan became an eight-acre plan. And I developed the eight-acre vineyard in, by 91 and started selling grapes. And I started selling grapes for different wineries. The first one that I sold grapes to was K. 
King Estate, who at that time uh, had developed a big winery, but the vineyards were not established. And I continued selling to them until it got to a point that they didn't see the, the value. And subsequently, I started selling grapes to local uh, Evesham Wood, uh, uh, um, Erath, uh, and other local wineries. Um, and in that fashion, started to understand more about vineyard management. Initially, I tried to do most of it myself. And then eventually, I realized that I was, if I thought residency was tough, this was going to kill me. So it was uh, gradually, but very definitely, that I learned about the wisdom of hiring folks and having a vineyard manager uh, that I could direct, maybe, and influence and make sure they did the right things because I certainly had learned the right things, and I learned the right things after probably doing all the wrong things. Uh, I, I certainly could write a book on all the wrong things I did, uh, and I can have pictures of all the, <laughs> the, the robust amount of uh, powdery mildew I had in the earlier years, but eventually I learned that you had to be faithful with spray. <laughs> so all I can tell you is that the, the vineyard experience was very uh, educational, I, I appreciate it uh, more and more, all the efforts that it took to make wine. And it was along, again, along those tracks that I got to befriend uh, um, Rob Stewart, uh, who was the, uh, worked for Erath for many uh, years and eventually was going on uh, out on his own. And we happened to connect at the right time. He was uh, having the same thread of insecurity about making the commitment to start a winery on his own. And I had, uh, was at a point that I felt that I wanted to take my wine experience to a different level. And in great part because my children that had been a major part of my life and a very proud part of my life um, had now become increasingly more self-sufficient and were going their ways. And so I felt that I could make that next risky step of developing a winery. And I looked at the winery as a chance to uh, enhance my life. It not only fulfilled my trip of a, of a winery and a whole wine experience, but I found it as a way to enhance my life. I'm a social animal. I love, uh, you know, uh, the ability to interact with other souls, and I find that that's how we become better human beings. Um, and I love the fact that I could create this setting that could facilitate that, while at the same time, you know, show off, show off our wines that were from the beginning made by Rob Stewart, and uh, mix it with my culture, which I thought was also going to add a, another dimension of uh, charm for my uh, life. And um, along the way, then, uh, even though I had a change in my life as far as you know my married state, I was fortunate enough to find. Uh, an Oregon princess that uh, has uh, been able to uh, make this experience a little more exciting and uh, rewarding at so many levels. T tell me about the, you mentioned the, 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 the vineyard, uh, vineyard standalone before you started making wine um, and all the challenges of that. So tell me about that and getting to the point of 
what was your first agriculture experience like? What was your first land owning experience like? And 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 how did you how did you muddle through before you hired someone to, to kind of take some of the weight off? Well, because it was my land and I come from a background if you're gonna do something, you better know it and do it yourself. I had that sort of uh, background. So first thing you have to imagine is this non-agricultural creature um, having all this hunk of land and trying to learn how to work. And so the first thing I did is try to clear it. And it happened that a patient of mine had a, a son from Eastern Oregon that had a gigantic tractor available on consignment. And so here I buy this humongous tractor. By the way, it was a very nice tractor. It was air conditioned and everything. But this gigantic thing that I had to learn uh, to use, and then I started using it to clear my land. And along the way, then I find out about the rockiness of this terrain because of the Masula, everything, mm -hmm. the Masula flood and all that goes with that. And I found rocks in every little crook and cranny. And so you'd see me out there on the weekends and on my a day off that I made myself take a day off so I could work out here. And I would be clearing the land, pushing those rocks to the side, and eventually cleared it with this gigantic thing. And in, initially, uh, because my wife at the time was into horses, we planted oats to try to understand just the soil. And then when we, after the vineyard, then of course, I changed my tractor to a more reasonable tractor. That thing was amazing, but it did make me proud <laughs> that I could learn how to do something like that and, and that I could indeed engage with the land mano a mano here. Um, but uh, once I had the, the vineyard and I had uh, folks help me put the vineyard in place, of course, um, I started doing, you know, trying to see if I could do all the horticulture, all the cleaning of the weeds, try to keep the spraying up, and I was always behind, always behind, eternally behind. Every, um, every three or four weeks, I would sort of almost have to fight a certain little wave of depression that, how the hell am I ever going to get it? <laughs> and so what I ended up doing is periodically I would hire a group of uh, workers to clear the weeds, and I stayed with the routine management of it, and, uh, and then the spraying. And of course, the spraying, um, the first couple of years, not so, most, not so needed, but afterwards, you have to be very faithful. And I saw the books, I saw what they recommended, but I thought, oh, come on, a couple of days, I'm not gonna, I can't get free, I'm in surgery, I can't do this and that, or I'm on call, I can't do it. And uh, uh, the, the end result of that is that I would fudge on how I sprayed. And that's how I got to know uh, the power of uh, powdery mildew. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was when uh, third or four years when we started having some crops and we thought we could do something with it. And we went out to uh, try to harvest and of the eight acres, I think we had two buckets of grapes because everything else was so impaired. And so it was after that that then I hired somebody to start doing the overseeing for me. And when I hired this manager, I saw what he was doing, which is he was a manager, but he had people working for him. And he had particularly one supervisor doing everything. And uh, since I had now developed my own wealth of information about sprays, the whole cycle of uh, the uh, vineyard plants and what to do and what not to do, uh, I, led, I worked with him for a year, actually two years, 
And eventually I thought, wait a minute, I can do this. <laughs> so that's what I did. But to, to get to the point of actually hiring somebody, I'll never forget, there was a, um, uh, I was working the vineyard, like I told you earlier, religiously whenever I had time by myself. And one time I had invited a gentleman who was involved with the uh, wine industry, Robert Bisconti. And Robert Bisconti um, was not only involved, had a, many vineyards, and I had invited for dinner and I was praying. I came back, I apologized because I was a filth. He said, listen, hang in with my wife, we'll drink some wines, I'll come right down. And when I came down, I'll never forget that man's words, which clicked and also it was one of those things that transitions you in life. He looked at me and he said, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, Maurice, but uh, this is sort of like an estate. And right now, son, you look like the slave of the estate. And, you know, you may enjoy that. I don't think anybody does. Uh, you might want to think over the fact that hiring people and delegating is not a bad thing. Um, and I'll never forget that I started thinking the words of this gentleman uh, needed to do something or else I was going to end up really, really drowning. Uh, and it changed. I started, that's when I hired the manager. That's when I also learned that I needed help with the overall facility. And it became fantastic, a fantastic uh, piece of advice. Uh, and it, it changed my life because it changed my perspective. And um, eventually I then learned the, the value of trying to develop a relationship with key, a key vineyard supervisor. And although I went through different workers, one of the, the, the marvels of all times is that a group of a family that was very faithful in helping me with the vineyard, because they worked with other vineyards, uh, told me that they would have to be backing off from working so much because they were spending more time with Isham but they had a little brother that perhaps could help me. And it was uh, at that time that I hired who was our vineyard supervisor, which is Raul Torres. And it was one of the best things also that has happened for uh, this operation, for this winery, for this, the, the whole family of Cubanissimo. It's amazing, I love that. Um, so tell me about, you mentioned meeting, kind of meeting Rob Stewart at the right time. You, yeah. you wanted to make, he wanted to have wine made, he wanted people to make wine for. Tell me about the initial collaboration, what kind of wine you were hoping to make from here, what, yeah. the, what you wanted to present to the world, and starting to, once you had wine, starting to figure out how to get it in people's hands. Yeah, and, and, and it's a good question from the answer because I think that one of the things you learn about Pinot Noir is one of those varietals that has such a broad spectrum in how we present it. Uh, and some people uh, can present it, what they call Burgundian, with all the lightness and the nuances uh, of that type of uh, Pinot Noir. Other ones present it in a medium body. Other ones want to bulk it up. And um, I tend to be a passionate a fan of Pinot Noir, the grape. And I like that middle zone, uh, medium bodied, medium uh, flavored, something that allows the expression uh, of the wine and the vineyard from where it comes, uh, but doesn't necessarily dominate the palate. And I also wanted it to match, uh, you know, Mediterranean Caribbean foods. After all, 
as a uh, winery called Cubanissimo, I was going to try many times to match it with Cuban foods. So I wanted to be in that range. Rob tends to be in the middle upper range, and so we had to sort of have a, 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 an agreement of how I wanted my wine to be. And he felt very comfortable doing that. Um, uh, he, he has always been one that has been very focused on trying to get uh, the best uh, product out of the grapes he gets. He's uh, very artful in that. Um, and not only uh, has he been faithful to, to the type of wine I want, but then has continued to be with us as the vineyards have matured and we've expanded the vineyards. He's continued to follow through on that. And initially, you know, we collaborated a lot on the flavor spectrum, how we wanted versus what he was after, but he's eventually to start, uh, got to the point of understanding what he calls now the Cubanissimo wines and the Cubanissimo flavor spectrum, which has only been uh, of uh, tremendous uh, advantage to us. Uh, and then early on, uh, he, he did uh, berate me mildly early on after uh, we went to a trip to Spain and uh, the red wines were a little too busy because we went in the summer or too, too bulky, too difficult to drink in the heat. And I started drinking the rosés. Uh, and I remember thinking, well, I think that Pinot could probably make a very elegant version of that. And at that point in time, rosés were a rarity in Oregon. This was uh, in uh, 87, uh, 88. Um, and, no, take that back. And I'm trying to mix the years, and I'm not that bad. No, 200, uh, 207, 2007, 2008. And he mostly mildly berated me because of the fact that he felt that a rosé Pinot Noir would never collect the money that a Pinot Noir does. And I tried to express to him that it's in a, in a winery that has little options. I felt this was a way to find out if my uh, vineyards could make a good Pinot Noir, uh, a Roseo Pinot Noir. And uh, what was fascinating is uh, it produced a beautiful Roseo Pinot Noir. And Rob became captivated <laughs> by the idea. And after several years of wanting to not produce rosé, eventually started producing rosé. But so did the rest of Oregon. The Oregon started really uh, becoming uh, rosé producers after 2011, 2012. Uh, by that time, we were rocking it uh, and selling everything we made. Uh, but we didn't want to grow that aspect of it until recent years where we keep them selling out. And so now we're growing that, that aspect. And we've also added to the whole range of products that now Rob helps us with our Pinot Gris. And uh, Pinot Gris, of course, grows well. And what we wanted initially was really to grow things that grow well in Oregon and our part. We didn't want to do battle with the trends. Um, what we did do in the Pinot Gris is we did uh, combine the classic Oregon clone with an Italian clone to try to get different qualities in the grape, in the wine, and so far it's been working very nicely. And only recently have we now decided to become, push the uh, envelope a little bit. And so we've acquired land that you may have seen coming up on the, uh, just uh, as an extension of our existing vineyards. And we decided to put some more Pinot Noir there, but now we're gonna try to add Albariño, which is Spanish varietal white grape, 
and Tempranillo. And we'll see what it does for us. We've also added a small segment of Gamay Noir, which I do think is easily understandable how it would grow here well. And we know where Gamay Noir grows in Burgundy. We know why we got it going here, which was our similarity to Burgundy. So there's no reason under the sun that why we shouldn't do good Gamay Noir. And I think that this year we'll get our uh, first production of Gamay. So that's been our sort of vineyard experience right now. We are going to end up with uh, 20, 20 plus acres of grapes. Uh, most Pinot Noir, a couple in Gris, and the segments that I just told you. So we look forward to continuing to uh, grow the wine offerings that we have for our clients. And we have a, um, we've developed great friendships and great bonds with many of the people who come here and have a nice, healthy club membership. My next, my next question was going to be about that, so let's talk about that a bit, about once you have wine, how do you start finding customers, how do you get them here, and what, what do you offer, uh, what, what is sort of the Cubanissimo uh, hospitality ethos? Well, the first thing we offer is uh, friendliness and uh, openness to make sure we develop a, a, a bond with them and that they develop a bond with us. Um, we're trying to make sure that in addition to selling the wine that we feel speaks for itself, that we create something that they can feel special about and so that they can connect with the label, connect with the brand. Um, and to do that, we really have a, a commitment of getting staff that are people-oriented. We inform them so that the individual is a wine um, intellectual, they can drown them with whatever information they would want. But at the same time, we try to demystify wine. We want to make sure that wine is available and accessible to everybody. And we try to make sure we don't live and die by numbers. And we try to make sure that they don't need to die, live and die by numbers. We try to encourage the people to first develop their own sense of what wine they like. And we try to remind them that just like they learned how the clothing they liked and the clothes they didn't like, and the food they liked and the food they didn't like, wine is no different. You don't have to be going by liking the 91 rated wine. If you don't like it, then it sucks. Uh, and it's that simple. And we try to kind of educate folks to develop a confidence. And the only way to get that confidence is drinking more wine, different, different type of wine, and developing your own palate. Uh, so we, we get that connection with the folks. We don't try to overly present ourselves as some sort of snobbish entity. That's something we don't want to be. Um, um, then in addition to that, if you're asking how did we get started, well, initially, not only did we want to have a place that was accommodating, but give a different flavor by creating sort of a Cuban cafe type feel. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to try to see if we could push the market and, and enjoy the benefits that this label could offer you because Cubanissimo has a certain Latin tone and maybe in a Cuban community that might be good or a Latin community that might be good. So we started trying to uh, foray into Florida and uh, distribution in Florida. And 
We did very well there, but we also learned uh, the challenge of dealing with distributors. And I can tell you that along the wine, my wine journey, I have gotten help uh, with the vineyard development and understanding vineyard management. I have gotten help in trying to uh, develop winemaking skills and how to make better wines. Where the uh, rubber uh, stops is when you start now having to sell the wine, which every, you know, understandably, every entity is just trying to look out for itself. So there's where things stop. Uh, and there's where I, we encountered the biggest difficulty in trying to not only do our own direct-to-consumer sale here, but doing distribution, we encountered that the distributors are uh, 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 voracious and they don't know a limit of when to stop as to trying to get you to give it for less. Uh, and I found that even though we had a, a growing market in Florida, Increasingly, I was being asked to um, uh, give my right arm for the cost or, or maybe a chunk of my heart as well. And uh, even though we grew uh, enough, we felt that that dynamic wasn't going to be what we wanted to be about. So we started pulling back from distribution. And we uh, decided to focus on the direct-to-consumer sale, grow the club membership, develop uh, events so people would have a chance to get to know us, come here, get to make this uh, one of their favorite sites to come back to. And um, we have succeeded in that, in that capacity. We look to continue to grow that by growing some of the indoor facility. But uh, basically, uh, the, the formula we now have is focusing entirely on direct-to-consumer sales through internet, through club memberships, and through direct uh, on-site sales. We do uh, uh, some uh, what I call limited uh, self-distribution, which we do because, because it helps us in the Salem area. The folks get to know our wines in that fashion and then come see us. And we have, on time, requested, uh, done some select distribution. But the, the struggles of putting, uh, at least with our volume right now, the struggles of going out and starting to uh, uh, tangle with the distributors is something, if we, if we do, it's going to be very selective. Uh, it's just not, uh, it was the side of the wine industry, as I started off, that um, was least attractive. Uh, and um, you know, and I know business, so it's not—it's not like I'm naive enough at how things work. It's just that what you found is the distributors felt that they were—if you wanted to go into Florida, you had to go through them. And I don't want to make the connection to Italian organizations, but it certainly there was a lot of uh, similarities. <laughs> You mentioned earlier uh, when you're talking about your work at, at Salem Health, uh, sort of being part of a community and being able to being able to support a community. So tell me about using Cabinissimo to support the Salem community and uh, what you've been, what what kind of causes, what you find important to give back to. Oh, you know, I happen to think that um, from the beginning, if we've been in a position to help the charitable organizations in our area, we do. The uh, reality is that there's many charitable organizations throughout the state in different parts, and you have to put a little bit of boundaries so that you can uh, 
be responsible and be to your organization. But we have typically been associated with any uh, organization that helps children, uh, helps women in crisis, uh, folks that uh, are in any capacity in need that we can lend our, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the food uh, uh, bank in this area does a lot of events and we're always participating because we feel that it's, it's our role to give back to the community. Um, and uh, when it comes to the hospital, basically I have always been part of making sure that all the professionals there, if they bring their little ID tag, they get discounts. <laughs> so I do want to make sure that I celebrate all my colleagues out there. Um, but no, when it comes to charitable events, we've been, you know, I can't give you a laundry list, but it's been mostly focusing around um, people in need. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a privilege, it's a, I find myself in the, in the happy circumstance to having come from a very humble beginning to this state, and I feel that I've never, um, oh, never forgotten the humble beginnings, and I feel if I can help anybody with a hand up, then I'm going to do it. But I've done it. Uh, I've done that even before the vineyard and the winery. It's just it's just been an extension of who I have been. So you talked about the new new uh, grape, grapes going into the ground and some new new varietals. Um, tell me about what else is kind of on the horizon for for Cuban Ismo. Are there are there future plans, future kind of goals you're looking at? I think the biggest thing we're trying to see is if with these new grapes uh, and the new uh, spectrum of wines that we'll be offering, if that's going to have a, a, a wider reach. Right now, our focus will continue to be direct-to-consumer sale. If there's going to be anything, it's continue to grow the club membership uh, and continue to make sure that we know from the club membership what else we can do to make them be more content members and to be able to grow the membership. Uh, so to tell you that at this point in time, I'm trying to grow the volume to start distributing and trying to uh, meet uh, that uh, double again, I'm not interested in that. I'm going to mostly keep uh, the, the winery growing in a way that we can handle. We don't, I, I, I think that we've been responsible in growing uh, but maintaining the quality, and that's our main goal. We don't want to be so growth-oriented that we forget that we're all about the wine and contact with the people. And so we'll maintain that. Uh, I think like, uh, our, our, our aspirations is to grow uh, in a direct-to-consumer sale program. And one of the biggest challenges, actually, in that, in that arena right now is uh, shipping. Shipping becomes a, a, a problem because we're trying to see what is the best formula to keep clients that are using the internet to order wines to continue to order it. And shipping keeps going up and up and up. Um, and you know, we're also trying to make sure, uh, even though I, it's about trying to make uh, money in this business, it's a business, we're still always really trying to keep the wine reasonable, so you always find us doing the very reasonable pricing. But we're also challenged, like every other industry, with increasing costs. You know, bottle costs are going up, uh, labeling costs are going up. And so, 
you know, those things are going to be the things that we need to find out how to mitigate. And what we have in our industry, a lot of help in that area where people share how they're trying to improve. Uh, something that has helped us here has been our local AVA, Eola Amity AVA, has a group that gathers uh, once a month and we interact with them and hear their experiences and hear so, some other success stories and try to learn from them what to avoid. So you talked earlier about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon wine as you got here. Uh, tell me about the, the growth and the changes you've seen in Oregon in your time here and what are, the, what are the biggest differences now as you look at the industry? Well, I think the industry has grown and the evolution has been, has been what happens with a very large wine industry that uh, increasingly, of course, it becomes more competitive. Some of the sort of the, the high level of camaraderie that we had is diminishing a little bit. Um, I still find our AVA, Yola AVA, uh, Yola Amity AVA to be very uh, wonderful and very amicable. But I, I know in the wine industries, especially when you go and uh, you go to um, these fairs to show and display wine, you, you get the tension that it's now part of the reality of people needing to compete for a limited market. We're not, you know, this is not a very populous state and you have now a heck of a lot more wineries and you're competing for a, a that pie hasn't grown that much. And so that's what, what I've noticed that as the industry in Oregon, the numbers of wineries have grown, the level of competition, the tightness is, is, uh, is also grown. Um, that doesn't mean that we couldn't impact it. And I certainly don't ever, I try to make sure that I don't add to that tension uh, 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 sensation or uh, problem, if you will, that I see it. But um, no, that's part of it, that it has become more competitive. Um, the wines are uh, also uh, growing in sophistication through the years. And that's wonderful as well. One of the biggest challenges that every winery has in Oregon is that we also, because we've been so successful, have opened the door to big money from others, uh, from California and everything, coming and investing here. And so uh, you have to find your niche in how to fit in that sort of uh, panoply of, 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 of wineries. Um, I think that by keeping it on a, uh, a, the personification or presentation as a uh, family winery that is oriented uh, to connecting with our clients, not, not just selling wine, although we're very interested in selling wines, I think we, we grow in our following. Uh, people see that we're not just peddling a product, we're trying to develop a relationship uh, with them. And this become, the product becomes a vehicle. Once again, leads into my next question, which is, you mentioned obviously a family winery. You mentioned your Oregon princess earlier. Tell me about uh, how you two met and what role she has played in Cubanissimo. Deborah uh, uh, is uh, a trained nurse and she was a nurse um, at Salem Health. Um, and when she started, 
she uh, showed herself to be immensely uh, uh, qualified and just someone that awed you by her, the skill sets that she brought to her work. And it didn't hurt that she was immensely attractive to keep my eye on her. Uh, as my situation in life changed and I uh, divorced, uh, I got the uh, opportunity of trying to see if there was a chance of developing a closer relationship and eventually she gave up and uh, did go out with me. Uh, um, but uh, from that first day and since, it has been a, a beautiful experience. She not only brings positivity, but brings also a lot of intelligence to the decisions we make. Um, she has taken a lot of uh, ownership of the management side of uh, Cubanissimo, although we do have wonderful uh, Taylor Covert that you've met. Uh, she works with her hand in hand. And uh, we develop a routine monthly meeting with uh, the, man the group that manages us, uh, which is basically yours truly, Deborah, Taylor, and Raul. And we basically see where we're at, inventories at, and start making projects to kind of uh, keep on each year presenting the wine in a better way, in a better light. Uh, we've recognized, uh, begrudgingly, but we've recognized that we do have to enter some competitions. <laughs> because those numbers sell wine, even though we don't really live by numbers. Uh, so we're doing that. But we're basically now also trying to make sure uh, that once the weather allows it, that we start doing events and um, growing that relationship with uh, folks in Salem and in, in the surrounding areas. And in that fashion, also growing the membership as well. But no, she has been key in every decision making that we've had here. From the first day when we decided to put a, the actual winery facility, because we developed this in 2007, and all the components of designing, and she has been key in all of that. And as we plan growth, similarly. Um, and it's, it's always wonderful to have that type of partnership um, that you can, you know, somebody you trust so that you can try to make your best decisions. Um, and no, I, I, can't, I can't say enough about uh, how wonderful that has been for me and for the winery and hopefully for her. <laughs> <laughs> so last question I have for you. Um, what are you proudest of as you look back on what you've accomplished so far? What makes you proudest? Well, uh, that's an easy answer. I'm proudest of being a father and the children that I've kind of helped uh, put on this earth. Uh, they've all grown to be very wonderful uh, and successful human beings. And then as I married Deborah, two other magnificent human beings that have only added to my happiness. So I can tell you, hands down, being a father is a thing I'm proudest of. I think without a doubt, um, being a neurosurgeon is, has been an immense gift to me. Uh, even, and it's a gift to me because I have the privilege of helping others and helping others in a very real, tangible way. And um, I'm humbled that they trust me to do that, but I've been able to succeed in helping them. 
and that is a if a rewarding a reward that I, it's hard to uh, express adequately the fact that every day I get up and every night I come back and I know I've helped people. I've helped people walk. I've helped people survive a, a tragic uh, disease. So it's without doubt uh, I'm very happy and extremely proud of having been a neurosurgeon. So I can't leave that out of the formula. Uh, I am extremely happy and proud of the relationship I have with my wife. I think that finding the right partner in life cannot ever be understated or overstated. It's just uh, so, it makes your life so effortlessly livable when you have the right partner. And then it's without a doubt, Cubanissimo has been something that has helped round out my life. I cannot tell you but how magnificent it is to share time and stories with all the folks that come here. And they come from everywhere, and that makes it all the more interesting. And then listening to their stories. You know, I think that we've been put here on Earth for many reasons, but one of them is to uh, try to relate to each other and try to become, learn from each other if possible, but mostly relate to each other and try to be better uh, uh, people to each other. And I think that the, the jollification of, that is afforded by wine is a great tool for that to happen. <laughs> Absolutely is. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything? Oh my gosh, I don't know that. I mean, there's a lot of questions, but you've done a great job so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, uh, sharing your space with us, sharing your wines with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. No problem. Please come back sometime without less obligation and responsibility so we can share other type of stories and share more wine. <laughs> <laughs>